You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. If you have your Bibles today, I hope that you'll join me in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 1. This morning we're starting a new sermon series looking at this Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is considered one of the minor prophets, not because he's unimportant or because his message isn't significant, but because of the length of his writing. And so if you look at the breakdown or kind of the categories of uh, the books of the Bible, uh, you know that uh, you think of the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, for example. They are the major prophets, not because they are major league and uh, the minor prophets are minor league. Uh, it's not that at all. Uh, the final 12 books of our Old Testament are uh, kind of set aside as the minor prophets. And several centuries before the birth of Christ, what we call the minor prophets were collected together actually in one scroll and became known as the Twelve. Uh, although the twelve prophesied uh, over uh, five different centuries. Uh, Micah wrote in a day uh, much like the day in which we live. Uh, While this is an ancient text, it is so incredibly timely, so applicable to where we live today. Uh, Micah prophesied around the same time as uh, the prophet Isaiah. They were contemporaries. Uh, prophesying in around the 8th century B.C., Micah found the nation of Israel in deep trouble with God. As God's chosen people, they had uh, fallen into terrible moral decay. Society was dissolving, misery abounded, uh, there were no grapes or figs, cravings went unfulfilled, the godly are not to be found, instead murder is widespread, uh, rulers are corrupt, justice is perverted, Um, Things had gotten so bad that people cannot trust each other, even uh, their own spouses. The family has disintegrated. Now, does that sound like the evening news? And yet Micah was not hopeless. He writes in chapter 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah's hope was based upon the faithfulness of of Almighty God. Mark Dever uh, has a, a great work. Uh, it, he has actually a, both an Old Testament and a New Testament survey. Uh, and in his work on the Old Testament called The Message of the Old Testament, he says that there are three major themes in the book of Micah that help us understand the character and nature of God. That's critically important because anytime we open an Old Testament book, we don't want to just study it as some sort of a historical lesson. Certainly, we're looking at ancient history, and we need to understand the historical context in which it was written, but, but, it, but it's much more than just a, a history book. In fact, Scripture tells us all these things were written for our learning, and we should learn from and come to understand better who God is and how He relates to His people uh, even in these ancient days. And so, uh, these three major themes... Uh, are found here in the book of Micah and will kind of serve as the the foundation for our study of this book. Number one, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. That was not just true then, it is true today. God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Number two, God wants his people to be restored. 
God wants his people to be restored. That was true then, and it's true today. God wants his character to be known. God wants his character to be known. And how does he do that? Well, he wants us, his character to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing knocks God off his game. Okay, nothing leaves God somehow perplexed. Uh, and so we come to understand that better, even uh, in an Old Testament book like Micah, through the acknowledgement of his supremacy, through the remembrance of his righteousness, and also through the demonstration of his mercy. And so I hope that you will engage in this uh, sermon series. We're planning to kind of take it a chapter at a time. So uh, as we lay out a sermon series, this will be about a seven-week series. And uh, I would just remind you, if for some reason you have to miss uh, one week, we, we podcast those every week. You can go back and, and, and listen to the one that you missed uh, or whatever. We also have sermon notes in the app. You can find a link to uh, the podcast through the app as well. And so uh, really important that we stay engaged Uh, with uh, this particular book of the Old Testament. Let's look at it together, picking it up in uh, chapter 1, verse number 1. I hope that you'll follow along as I read this morning. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. In most of our Bibles, there's a heading now that says, The Coming Destruction. I'm just going to tell you at the outset of this morning's message, this is not an easy message. You will probably not leave here today with warm, fuzzy feelings. Okay, If that was your hope coming in, uh, I, I don't want to apologize, but uh, you're going to be disappointed. Okay, But in the midst of this, there is hope, and I want you to see that today. It says in verse 2, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Why? Verse 5 tells us, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth, wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots. Inhabitants of Lachish, it was the beginning of sin, to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. 
Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morisheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. At first glance, you may read those words and go, what in the world is this? And one of the reasons that many people are reluctant to uh, dive into an Old Testament text like this is because uh, it's confusing to them. There's strange language used oftentimes. And so hopefully uh, we'll find some clarity as we look at this together. What do we know about Micah and his prophecy? Well, first we should take notice of his name. Uh, his name Micah. It comes from the same root as my name Michael. Uh, and it means, who is like the Lord? That's a question. Who is like the Lord? From which I think we can infer that it was from a godly home that Micah has come. And they're concerned for their child. That Micah would be raised to honor and know the living God. There's a second thing that we learn about him here. We learn a little bit about his hometown. We're told in verse number one that he is Micah of Moresheth. Uh, now, Moresheth is a relatively small uh, agricultural town in the southern part of Judah. Uh, now, you'll remember at this point in Israel's history that the nation has been divided into two. This is the time of the divided kingdom, we call it, into a northern kingdom. Uh, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel are in the north. They call themselves the kingdom of Israel. Uh, with its capital city, Samaria. That's why you see Samaria mentioned often here. Benjamin and Judah are to the south with the capital city of Jerusalem, uh, and that's the kingdom of Judah. And so Micah is from the southern kingdom, but he has an oracle, or oracles they're called. We often refer to them as the woe oracles uh, of the prophets uh, for both the north and the south. And what's important for us, if we're going to understand some of the central themes in Micah's prophecy over the next several weeks is to understand that he was not raised among the elites uh, of Judah in the capital city of Jerusalem. He's not a city boy. Okay, and though that's where he serves and that's where he ministers. Uh, he's not one of them, you might say. Uh, we would probably say that he is from a hick town in the boonies of Judah, uh, which is why it shouldn't surprise us to discover that a great deal of his preaching reflects a special sensitivity to the abuse of power by the elites of society at the expense of the vulnerable and the marginalized and the poor. He had a burden for those people because they were his people. He could readily identify with them. One commentator put it this way. He said, Micah's instinctive empathies were with the farmer and the shepherd and the smallholders of that agricultural region. He was not lured away by the glittering facade of the new culture, fine houses, advanced fashions, get-rich-quick businesses. He kept a firm grip on the moral realities that make for true national greatness. So we'll continue to see here through our study that Micah has a burden for the disenfranchised. He is sensitive to the abuse of power that was common in that day. Now if there is a text that you're familiar with in the book of Micah, it is likely Micah chapter 6 verse number 8. Where it says, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
And so in that, you see these sensitivities that Micah brings uh, to his, his preaching, to his prophecy here. There's a third thing I think we need to notice by way of introduction. It has to do with the time when Micah ministers. Micah's ministry takes place, it says here in verse number one, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uh, if you are not real familiar with the biblical text or with the layout of Scripture, I think many times people assume that it is laid out for us kind of like a novel. It's laid out in a linear sort of way, and these things all kind of happen chronologically the way that we find it in our English Bibles. That is actually not the case. In fact, I would encourage you to do sometime a, a chronological reading of Scripture. It'll help you understand. What you find in the Old Testament particularly is many times it's kind of written in layers, so if you want to better understand what was going on during the time that Micah prophesied, you would need to go back in the Old Testament, uh, and you would need to, to look at the, the moral temperature of the time in which these kings reigned in Judah. Uh, you get a better idea of exactly why it was that God sovereignly ordained that Micah would bring this message at this time. Uh, it's critically important for us to understand that. And so uh, his ministry takes place in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That means he preached for around 53 years. Good long ministry, right? By anybody's standards. From about 740 B.C. to 687 B.C. His contemporary, one of his colleagues, the prophet Isaiah, uh, was his colleague in the capital of Jerusalem. Uh, some consider Micah, uh, his prophecy, to be the cliff notes uh, and the prophecy of Isaiah to be the full deal because they, they cover many of the same themes. Many of the same emphases are found in both uh, prophecies, both books. And so, uh, as you may know, uh, the political, uh, the big issue geopolitically in that particular time for God's people, both in the northern and southern kingdom actually at this point, is the threat posed by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the superpower of the day. And so it looked like they were poised for an invasion at any moment. The story of Jonah, okay, the, the minor prophet that we find in our Bibles just before Micah here. Uh, the story of Jonah and the extraordinary revival that took place in the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. You've got to understand was at least a generation before Micah and Micah's ministry. So again, sometimes as we read scripture, we think, man, here's this whole thing that happened with Jonah. And then here, there's Micah. Well, there's a gap of time here, okay? And so that took place a, a, a full generation before Micah's prophecy here. And so whatever happened in Nineveh, whatever repentance and turning to the Lord there was in Nineveh, it is now a thing of the past. It's history. Assyria is back to its vigorous paganism and its predatory international politics. And we still see similar things today, do we not? I mean, if you paid attention to the news at a hall uh, in recent weeks and months, uh, you, you see similar things going on. There's still uh, fightings and wars and all of these sorts of things. Micah's concern, as we're going to see in the first uh, three chapters of the book, is that the internal spiritual and moral decay of the life of God's people will bring them under divine rebuke and chastisement and discipline, and God will use the Assyrians to bring a terrible season of judgment upon them. It's like a warning. 
It's like not too many weeks ago, we had the sirens sounding here in Van Alstine. We had bad weather. (laughs) Funnel clouds have been sighted in the area. And so you can hear those sirens. It's a warning to us. And that's that's kind of what Micah is doing here. Israel in the north, Judah in the south were both descending into patterns of overt worldliness and greed. The rich were preying upon the poor. Idolatry was rampant. Um, There was this cultural captivity among God's people uh, that that, that no one seems to notice. They're just kind of blending in with the, the world around them, we might say. And so God sends his prophet Micah to sound the alarm. And it's an alarm bell that we still badly need to hear in our own context and our own time. How easy for us, amidst the affluence and the ease of our culture to ignore the weakest and the least in our city, in our communities, to look the other way at someone else's problems. How easy for us in our cultural Christianity, in this part of the South, particularly the Bible Belt, to worship cheerfully on Sunday while we ruthlessly tear down the little guy Monday through Friday because it's not personal, it's just business or any number of other Lame excuses. How easy to indulge our flesh and blend in with the world around us and adopt those worldly philosophies and use people to get things instead of using things to love people. It was very much the sort of problem that was plaguing Israelite society in Micah's day. And those are the very same issues, much of the same issues that are a challenge among us today. And God, as we will see, has much to say about it all. And we're going to look at chapter 1 today under four headings, really. So here's the outline. Okay, number 1, in verses 2 through 7, we're going to look at the shock of the judgment of God. In verses 8 and 9, we're going to see the posture of the servant of God. What What is Micah's tone as he delivers this message? And then verses 10 through 16, we're going to look at the irony of the wrath of God... And then we're going to back up to verse 15 and look at the path of the mercy of God. So first, I want us to notice the shock of the judgment of God. Notice how Micah begins in verses 2 through 5. He says, hear, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Then in verse 3, he describes the Lord like a judge coming forth from his chambers to take his place in the courtroom to Press his lawsuit against them. The Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And his coming, then described in verses 4 and 5, in terms that were really like a literary clinic among the prophets of that day. Micah speaks about God's coming with the shaking of the earth and the mountains melting like wax and so on. It's traditional language for the coming of God in judgment. And they would have easily understood that. His original audience would have understood that. People of Judah and Israel, Samaria and Jerusalem, their capitals, they would have heard oracles like this one before. This would have been fairly common language for them. And for the most part, when they heard this sort of vocabulary, an oracle of God, or what we might call a woe oracle against the nations... Uh, summoning them to attend upon his justice, it generally spelled good news for the people of God. God is going to judge their enemies. 
He's coming as a judge, and he's going to deliver them. And you can picture the, the congregation smiling and nodding as Micah's sermon gets underway. This is good stuff, Micah. Keep going. We like it so far. It'd be like the temptation that the modern-day preacher feels. I could, I could pick pet things that we pretty much would all agree upon, and I could exclusively preach on those subjects, and we could come in here every week and pretty much have a big pep rally and go, yes, we good, they bad. We good, they bad. Mm. It'd be easy for us to do that, right? But that's not what we see happening here. So then verse 5 lands on them like a bucket of ice-cold conviction. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. You can just imagine these people like, I'm sorry, wait, wait, what, what was that again? Did he say what I think? He said Jacob and Israel? I'm sorry, Micah, excuse me. Um, I think you misspoke there. You, you said Jacob and Israel. You, you, surely you meant Assyria and Babylon, right? Egypt and Moab. But no, he heard, they heard him right. Micah keeps on preaching, doesn't he? The news of the Lord's coming forth is not good news in this case for the people of Israel. Look at what he says. What is the transgression of Jacob? Or better, who is the transgression of Jacob? Sin and sinners can't be as easily separated as we might like. What is the transgression of, of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? These are the capital cities, the representative seats of religion and political power. And Micah is saying that they are the epitome of the wickedness against which the Lord is coming to press his lawsuit. And his judgment will be terrible when it comes. I think the language here is interesting as it gives us this picture of God coming down in judgment. I, uh, in my formative years, we, I grew up in a, a little two-story house in Garland, Texas, and um, the only rooms upstairs were my room and my sister's rooms, and uh, I can remember on many occasions, more than I should probably admit today, uh, because I probably was not doing something I was supposed to do, uh, my mom or my dad standing at the bottom of the stairs yelling upstairs, don't make me come up there. It's that whole thing of, you know, on a road trip, don't make me stop this car. You know, you're just so thankful that your dad's arm isn't any longer, right? I mean, it's like, don't, don't make me stop this car. That's, that's kind of the idea of what we see here. I'm coming down there. This is not pretty. You look at verse 6. It says, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones in the valley and uncover her foundations. The city, he says, will be so obliterated, it will be reduced to the kind of rubble and, and, and boulders that farmers plow up to make room to plant their vineyards. Why will God do it? Verse 7 gives us a hint. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the, the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So the people have turned to pagan gods, pagan idols, instead of turning back to the Lord. Like an unfaithful husband going to prostitutes, Micah says. And so he will hand them over to the unfaithful Assyrians whose idolatry was legendary. 
It's a sermon that would have landed like a slap in the face for Micah's original hearers. And his rhetorical strategy here is absolutely brilliant. He sets them up with what looks like a familiar woe oracle against the nations around them. Hear you people, oh you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And then he turns and says, no, judgment begins at the house of God. Wow. It's like that moment in the story of uh, David and Nathan. Nathan tells David a story about injustice, and David bristles in outrage at the sin of this man that is so obvious to him. He can see the sin of others very clearly, much like us. But he doesn't see the sin in his own heart. And so Nathan turns and says, no, 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 David. The man in the story is you. You the man. You the man. I'm talking about you. And that's what Micah does for the people of Judah and Israel here. At first, they think this is another story of God's coming judgment against the nations. A message that they can cheer and applaud, certainly. Because they deserve it, right? And then Micah turns the finger and says to them, you are the man. I have a word for you. There's a valuable and painful lesson here for us, isn't there? Don't we often pride ourselves on our rich heritage? Don't we revel in our many blessings? Aren't we quick to identify the faults and the weaknesses of the people around us while we firmly assert that we are the purest and the truest and the most faithful? No, says Micah, it's you. God is a case against you. He comes out from his place to judge you. God is never indifferent to sin. God was not indifferent to sin then, and God is not indifferent to sin today. We sometimes think, well, you know, times have changed. So God just kind of, you know, turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to the wickedness around us today. No, no, he doesn't. Or we somehow think in comparison that our sin is less stinky than the sin of those around us, those in the world. Micah has a different message. Micah wants us to see the awful danger that's found in presuming upon the grace of God. He will discipline and rebuke us if we shrug our shoulders in indifference and fail to repent. So the shock of the judgment of God... Stop looking out there and start looking in here. That's the message of Micah. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, the posture of the servant of God. Lest you think that he's delivering this message in some sort of uh, pious arrogance or with some sort of glee. Notice how Micah responds to this heavy message that he has sent to proclaim. Verse number eight, it says this, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. There's no sense of glee here. Micah takes no delight in this message. He's not rubbing his hands together and and saying, finally, they're all going to get what they deserve. (laughs) No. He must preach judgment now. That's part of his commission. He can't refuse it, but he laments as he does. He grieves as he does. Actually, the language is particularly striking in verse number 8 because it describes the sort of behavior that was reserved for public funeral rites 
for formal mourning over a bereavement. That's how he feels at the message that he's been sent to proclaim. One of my homiletics professors in seminary very wisely told us, there are many messages that you need to deliver through tears. Not easy. This is not easy. Micah's heart is breaking for wayward Israel. He's like the Apostle Paul who said, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved. The Lord Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem. He's lamenting over them. But at the same time, he can't refrain from, t- from giving this prophecy, from, from this word. And the same is true for us. If you've been through any kind of evangelism training that is worth anything and is remotely biblical, then you know one of the first things anyone, including myself, has to understand is that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I mean, that in itself is not the good news of the gospel. (laughs) Hey, buddy, let me share with you some good news today. You're a sinner. (laughs) That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that while you're a sinner... Christ died for your sins. (laughs) But you can't separate the two. You can't separate the two. It might be easier. We've got to preach what what we would call the bad news so that the good news might shine the more clearly as God's remedy. But when you preach the bad news, does your heart break? It's one of the great marks of someone who will love their lost friends and family enough to cross the pain threshold and open their mouths to speak for Jesus. Jesus. So the posture of the servant of God. I want us to look, number three, at the irony of the wrath of God. Now this next section, verses 10 through 16, reads a bit like a travel log. Micah, in his mind, he walks through all the cities and towns of the land and he speaks a word of warning or coming judgment or or characterizes how the people will mourn or, or seek to flee for refuge when the judgment comes. What we miss in our English translations is the ironic wordplay that Micah uses all the way through the second half of this chapter, really. That's why it doesn't make as much sense to us. As he names each town, what he actually does is he finds Hebrew verbs that sound like the name of that town, and there's an intended pun. There's an intended play on words. He's not trying to be witty. He's not trying to be clever. He's trying to to, to bring some force and power to his message. Uh, I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar. I tried to find a way to bring it out in English. And I came across James Moffat's idiosyncratic translation of the scriptures. His handling of this part of Micah gets close to capturing it. So I want want to read it to you and and see what you think. If you look at verse number 10, you kind of see it there in the ESV or whatever translation you may be looking at today. And I want you to listen to Moffat's version. Moffat says, Weep tears, O tear town. Grovel in the dust at dust town. Fare forth stripped, O fair town. Stir town, dare not stir. Sounds almost like a rap, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, yo, that's not what he's doing, okay? That's not what he's doing. But this is very intentional. The verse 13. To horse and drive away, O horse town, and so on and so forth. So, so you see what Micah's doing. He, he's not trying to be cute or funny. This is not a joke. He says in verse number 12, 
is going to come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 14 implies it, talking about parting gifts. Verse 16 comes right out and says that Assyria is going to come and take everyone away from their land into exile, into captivity. This is no laughing matter. So what is Micah trying to do here? He's trying to say judgment is coming and there is no earthly hiding place. He's trying to say even the very names of your secure homes, your, your safe, familiar communities are a kind of prophecy of doom against you waiting to, to, to fall at any moment. Here's the point I think Micah is really making. The safe and familiar can lull us into a false sense of security. I'm a Southern Baptist. I have been my whole life. I've been a member of XYZ Church. I've, 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 got, I've, got the, I've done this. I've done that. My father was a deacon. You, you make a lengthy list, right? And in that, you'll nestle in and think, man, I got this. I made a decision way back in XYZ year in vacation Bible school. I'm good to go. All is well. Nothing can touch us. I mean, after all, don't we Baptists believe once saved, always saved? Hmm. Listen, if you're not right with God today through faith in Jesus Christ, there is such an important message for you to hear. Hard to hear, but so important. Don't be lulled into a sleepy spiritual indifference by the easy familiarity of your comfortable life. I have a pretty sneaky suspicion that if our church was located in another part of the world that viewed the public gathering of people like we've done here this morning in this particular way, viewed it very differently than we've got it here in the good old United States of America, I have a pretty good suspicion it would thin the crowd a bit, don't you think? And I'll go so far as to say what a lot of American Christians particularly need is a little bit of persecution. We think we know what persecution is, but we really don't. We really don't. One day, the Lord will come out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. One day, all accounts will be settled, and we will appear before the judge of the universe. Wake up. That's what Micah is saying to his generation. He's sounding the alarm. Wake up before it's too late. The shock of the judgment of God, the posture of the servant of God, the irony of the wrath of God. There's an alarm seeking to shake us out of our spiritual slumber that we may flee from the wrath to come. And thankfully, that's not the end. Because number four, I want us to consider in these final few moments the path of the mercy of God. Where should we flee from the wrath to come? Let's back up to verse number 15. It says there, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. You say, what in the world is that? Merishah was a defensive military position, and Micah is saying, when the invasion comes, even Merishah will be conquered. And the reference to the glory of Israel, that's probably a reference to the leaders, to the nobility of the people. That's how they thought of themselves. We are the glory of Israel. And Adullam, remember, if that sounds remotely familiar to, to you, was a complex of caves, a sort of stronghold to which David resorted 
in 1 Samuel chapter 22 during the dark days of his conflict with King Saul. And to him, David gathered, Scripture tells us, they're a sort of ragtag band of misfits and dropouts. 1 Samuel 22 says this about that moment in David's history, in David's story. It says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him at Adullam. What a broken, messed up group of people, right? And Micah is saying to the glory of Israel in that day, you're no better than the band of ne'er-do-wells and thugs that gathered around David in the caves of Adullam. Still a word of rebuke, a word of judgment, but actually if you pay attention to the way the biblical storyline unfolds, you will find here amidst all the gloom of, Moracle, uh, of Micah's oracle of woe, at least the beginning rays of hope, a hopeful dawn. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the full dawn will wait for the second half of Micah's book, okay? So it won't be like this every week, y'all, okay? Where it's filled with notes of gospel hope. But here, there's this, this slim beginning ray of hope and mercy because those who gathered around David, as socially misfitted as they were, as weak and unlikely a band as they were to take over as an army that, as they were, they were nevertheless the beginnings of God's kingdom through David. Through them, through this ragtag band of misfits, God established David's throne. Under King Saul, Israel had lost its way. But through this unlikely group, a new beginning will dawn. Something like that is, is hinted at here as the glory of Israel comes to see itself as it truly is before God. Not as glorious at all but as wicked and rebellious and selfish sinners who need rescuing, and they flee to David's ancient stronghold. God is going to preserve a remnant of his people there, and from them he will build his kingdom anew. Eventually, those who went into exile return. And although it's a, a shadow of Judah's former glory, they rebuild Jerusalem, and from them will come through David's line, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the connection. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom God will redeem His people and build His kingdom. And Scripture tells us the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yeah, there's, there's gloom and darkness. Notes of judgment here, sounding a warning, a dire warning that we need to hear as well. But there's also a ray of gospel hope, if you have eyes to see it, that one day God will still bring a new beginning for his people by one greater than David, by the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Micah want us to do with all of this? What should our response be? Well, if there's any possibility of hope for us, for refuge and for a new beginning, where will it be found? Where will it be found? What, what, what must we do? Well, look at verse 16 very quickly and then, then we'll wrap it up. Verse 16 counsels the people to cut off their hair, shave their heads for the children of their delight. Micah is not trying to establish a new trend in hairstyles here. Okay, that's not what he's doing. Micah, again, is actually talking about public funeral rites in similar terms to what he used earlier to describe his own reaction to the coming judgment. 
So he's saying, I'm weeping and I'm grieving for you and I want you to join me in mourning over sin before you must be left instead to mourn in the wake of judgment that falls. He's essentially saying mourn now in repentance over your sin or mourn later in judgment. Mourn now over sin in repentance and find relief or mourn later as judgment falls from which there will be no rescue. Those are your choices. Mourn over sin now. Flee back to Adullam where David's stronghold is. Run back there not as the glory of Israel but as a sinner who needs rescuing. Broken and messed up. Go back where rescue can be found. Go back where it all started, where God will build his kingdom again. Come to Jesus in repentance. There's a refuge. There's a stronghold. There is a hiding place for sinners like you and me. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath and the curse of God, that everyone who believes in him might live. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He's really not talking there about brief seasons of sadness. He meant blessed are those who mourn over the reality of their sin, who have been shaken out of the comfort and the ease of their affluent, safe surroundings to see how precarious their position really is. Mourn and flee to Christ and find refuge in Him. In Him. And so with that, let's bow together in prayer this morning. As I said earlier, a message like this doesn't fall on us like a soft pillow. But if we're going to be faithful to the Word of God, Proclaiming the word of God. It's not always easy. So if you're here this morning and you're uncertain about your relationship with God. You can't identify a time in your life when you turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ as your refuge. It may be at this point in your life and your journey that you're hoping somehow, some way to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things so that God will be pleased with you. God's word makes it crystal clear that that is a really bad plan. Because it says that our righteousness, our best efforts, is like filthy rags. So the hard truth that you may need to understand today is that even on your best day, you can't be good enough. It's not until you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who is, was good enough. The one who paid your sin debt. And you can be in a right relationship with God. There may be others today who would say, Pastor, I, my testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ. I, I may not remember the exact date, but 
But I can go back to that time in my life when I, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. But it may be that there's some junk in your life right now that desperately needs attention. And it doesn't need a little spray paint. <laughs> no, it needs to be eradicated through repentance, confession. For you, it may be that it's time to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Turn from it. Run into the merciful, gracious arms of a loving God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And while the words, the inspired words, that come to us through the prophet Micah are hard to hear. And while it would be easy for us to think that this was for another time and another place in ancient history, that it really doesn't apply to us today, we, if we're going to be completely honest before you today, we know that that's simply not true. In the same way that you hated sin then, you hate it today. Because you are unchanging in your love, your mercy, your grace, your justice. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, that they be drawn to you. Lord, do a work in our lives that we know only you can do. We love you, we thank you, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.